Hello, good morning. My name is Bert. I'm one of the uh, pastor elders here at Anthem. It is a joy to be with you, opening the scriptures with you, doing life with you. And so if you guys would open up to Nehemiah chapter 6, that would be awesome. Nehemiah chapter 6. All right, let's read together starting in verse 1. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hikifurim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Samblat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it, it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such thing as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands." Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Methubel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. And I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go in the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid." All right, this is God's word. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, you are um, in everything. You are at the center of everything. Thank you for this story of Nehemiah and all that we're learning and gleaning from him and the people. Father, would you teach us uh, and instruct us? God, would your spirit bring to life the things that we need to learn about you this morning? God, would you be the teacher? Would you infuse my words? Uh, And God, would you make uh, the things that you want to stick, stick with people this morning? Thank you, Jesus. Amen. All right, we are in the book of Nehemiah. If you had not guessed, we are six chapters in, uh, and we're at this point where some internal struggles and oppressions among the Hebrews has been dealt with, and Nehemiah's attention is turned once again to the primary project of what we see in the book of Nehemiah, building the wall around Jerusalem. 
Now, the wall is almost done, save for just a few doors and and gates, but there was a final effort from some external enemies to stop and halt the building of this wall. And this time we see that they are attempting to intimidate or uh, deceive or disqualify or discredit the leadership of Nehemiah. Now, God has led Nehemiah and his people into this renewing period, this restoring period. And so if you don't know some of the backstory of, of Nehemiah, they'd been in exile about 150 years at this point. The kingdom of Israel had been split for about 550 years. And Nehemiah, this leader we see arise in the kingdom of Persia, has only known exile. He was born into exile. He lived and thrived and pursued God in the hardest and harshest of conditions. But what's interesting about the people of God is they are starting to see the fruit of their covenant with God again. And as God's restoring his people, he's restoring their identity of being his people. And they're restoring the practice of being his people. And when this is happening, when they're in tune with God and their identity, they're able to resist opposition to this wall-building project, and they're able to make progress on the wall and press into the mission that God has for them. And the book of Nehemiah, the whole book, and what we've been uncovering over the last five or six weeks is, is about people finding their identity in God, with him at the center, and at the same time revealing that apart from the work of Jesus, right, well, we, we will inherently fall short of God's glory, The people of God in the book of Nehemiah are walking in this this restoration that God has for them in their identity. But unfortunately, we're going to find out in just a few chapters, it still falls flat. The people still fail. And the entire book of Nehemiah is pointing to the need for an ultimate savior and reconciler that we find in the person of Jesus. So what we see in Nehemiah chapter 6, these first 14 verses here, is that Nehemiah's singular focus on God's mission in the face of opposition shows us how to resist distraction, temptation, disobedience, all of these things that tend to pull us away from God's call on our life for his mission. That's what's happening in in chapter 6. And as Nehemiah is walking out in this, and as God leads his people we see that Nehemiah is uniquely tempted in a different way, right? One of the things we've said a couple of times is that, that the, the story of Scripture just zooms in on this man and how he is obeying and walking faithfully with God. And for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit thought it right that his story needed to be told. And one of the reasons we see that is to learn some of these lessons around what it means to walk faithfully in obedience to God and what it means to lead in the midst of that obedience. And in the Bible, frequently, all over the place, leadership is often referenced as treacherous work. Look at some verses I'm gonna, uh, Steve's going to put behind me. In James 3.1, James says of leaders and teachers, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Paul continues this theme as well in 1 Timothy 5. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. But as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. 
These are quick warnings and just a very brief overview of what a lot of warnings are throughout the Bible of those who lead and how they should live because of the increased scrutiny on their life. There's a passage that many of, many of us have heard, and we've used it a few times throughout this uh, study of Nehemiah. It's in 1 Peter 5, and Peter's encouragement specifically to elders in the church, but it's applicable to all, is to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And there's, a, there's a logical sense to this approach of, of taking out a leader, of attacking a leader like we see in Nehemiah, of trying to discredit, disqualify the leader. Right? If God is at work and, and using a leader to rally people, like we saw in Nehemiah in chapter 1 and 2, to rally a people towards a common mission that God has given them, then the enemy's goal is to take out that leader. As Christians, though, we are all being brought into areas of influence and leadership in our lives. So the lessons from Nehemiah do not stop at those in positions of leadership necessarily, but they apply to each and every one of us. Because there are a number of things that the enemy would like to see happen to you as you lead community groups, as you lead worship, as you lead in kids' ministry, evangelistically, in your workplace, in your family, with your friends, wherever you've been kind of put into places of influence or authority or leadership or something like that. He wants to see your credibility thrashed, your identity and your confidence rattled, and your character tainted. And so as we look at the narrative of Nehemiah chapter 6, this is a helpful pause and reminder to not disqualify yourself from the lessons we need to learn from Nehemiah because you do not view yourself as a leader. Because we know as Christians, we're all in spots of leadership and influence, and this applies to us all. So Nehemiah's singular focus on God's mission then teach us things. In the face of opposition that we see Nehemiah found frequently, many times, opposition to the project that God had given him. He shows us how to resist distraction, temptation, disobedience to God's call on his life. And one thing that we've seen in in virtually every story in the history of God's people is that as God declares his name in the world, as he is moving his mission forward, there's always significant resistance to that. And Martin Luther, a a theologian in the the 16th century, identified from the scriptures the three common enemies of God that we see. And the first, he says, is, is Satan. The second is the flesh, our fleshliness. Right? And the third is the world at large. He identified those three that we see in the history of God's people. And consistently throughout God's story, we've seen these three enemies emerge to distract the people of God from carrying out his mission. Right? There are times in Scripture when it is legitimately spiritual warfare. Paul uses this language of a thorn in his side as a messenger of Satan. That is, Christians, we're, we're engaged in a battle beyond more than we can just see right here. And there are times in Scripture when the brokenness of the world lashes out to stop the work of God. In Acts, Luke describes riots in the city of Ephesus because once the gospel had been proclaimed, it had disrupted the entire economy. 
of sacrifices, of idol worship, of witchcraft, all of these things. And, and so legitimate economics had been disrupted because the gospel had been preached and believed and changed people's life. And so the world rebelled. And there are times throughout Scripture when the internal selfishness of, of people or of God's people or God's leaders serves as a distraction to the work of God. So think of, King, think of guys like King Saul and his own sinfulness and pride that caused distraction to the mission of God. Think of the, the generation of Israelites that God led out of Egypt, the Exodus generation, right? They had seen a huge, miraculous work of God to bring them out of 400 years of slavery. And the first thing they do when God leads them out is complain and want to go back to slavery, They continue to disobey and dishonor God so much so that he says that generation of people will not enter the promised land. An entire generation dies before God leads them to the promised land. In this passage, we see Nehemiah hard at work to carry out the commands that God had put on his heart and on the hearts of the people. They're nearing completion of the wall. There's, there's, they're almost done with the wall. And there's a natural or worldly opposition to the work that's being done here. Right? If Nehemiah finishes his work and Israel begins to rebuild its national identity that has real-world implications for the surrounding nations and regions, it is to their benefit that Israel stays under their foot without a rebuilt city, without walls, without a thriving economy or identity. It serves them to keep the people of Israel down. And so there's real world impacts to the wall being built. And just a few weeks ago, we saw that there are spiritual attacks and spiritual impacts to the nation of Israel being rebuilt. And here, there's a temptation for Nehemiah to fall into sinfulness or disobedience to what God has for him. But it starts in verse 1 with this plot to kill Nehemiah with some of these guys, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it. Right, So they're hearing that the work is being completed and their time is running out to stop this work in the wall. And so they invite him outside the city to come take counsel with them for a meeting. They want to talk about what's going on. They invite him to a meeting out of Jerusalem to get him away from the people and ultimately to do him harm that we find out. They want to kill him. And those wishing for destruction for the city of Jerusalem are running out of time because once the walls are built, the city is that much more defendable against attacks. And as long as the walls are broken down, attack is much easier and much simpler But when the walls go up, attack becomes much more difficult. And Nehemiah sees that there's a lot more than just diplomacy in this invitation. He repeatedly says no to their invitations to meet with them five times. Why? Because Nehemiah was realistic about his enemies. He knew these guys. He'd had encounters with them before. He knew their character. He knew that this would be a trap. Nehemiah was realistic about the temptations his enemies would bring to him. I mean, it must have been tempting to head to this meeting where the threat of opposition might finally be quelled, that maybe he can talk this out, or maybe he can finally get these guys off his back so he can finish the work on the wall. But Nehemiah knows better. He knows there was this threat against his life. 
The question for us in the midst of these two verses is, are we realistic about the enemies and their intentions in our life? Are you familiar with your own history? Are you familiar with the history of temptation in your life? Are you alert? Are you on guard like Peter often encourages us? Do you know what your own pitfalls are? Nehemiah was incredibly self-aware. He knew his enemies. He knew himself, and he knew this would be a trap. I love what we see with Nehemiah through his response. In verse 3, it isn't just a, no, I won't come down to you because you'll hurt me or you might harm me, but it's more than that. Look at verse 3. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop? Will I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. Nehemiah is so convinced that the work he is doing is God's will. That is his reason for not going down to meet them. He will not let his enemies distract him from what God's called him to do. He could have just said, I don't come down to you because you want to kill me, and that would be reason enough for, I think, all of us. And that seems like it would have been an appropriate answer for Nehemiah too, but it's much more than that. I can't come to you because God's called me to this great work, and you are trying to distract me from that. So what work was he doing that was so great? And it might be on the surface, just kind of building the walls and restoring the city, but it was more than that. And this work of restoring the identity of God's people, the world thought was foolish, They're slaves. They've been in slavery. They've been in and out of slavery their entire existence. Why bother giving them an identity again? And this wouldn't seem like a great work to the world. It might have seemed incredibly foolish to the world. But it's a great work because it's what the Lord has called them to do. And it's the Lord's name that's at stake here. We see in Nehemiah chapter 6 that greatness, the greatness of the work is not based on Nehemiah, his skill, his achievement, his personality, his actions, his behavior, his obedience. The barometer for greatness is based on God and his calling on his people to carry out his work. And even in thinking about Nehemiah chapter 6, I'm reminded of of two kind of big-time building projects that we see in the Old Testament. And they're probably stories we're familiar with, especially if we grew up in church and hearing some of the Sunday school stories. And, And one of them is Noah's Ark. Do you guys remember that story? Like, we, with hindsight, can look back and be like, oh man, Noah was a genius. He built the ark before the rains came. To the rest of the world, he was an insane person right? That work seemed foolish to the world, but it's what God had called him to do. And on the flip side, just a few chapters later, this other building project, the Tower of Babel, seemed incredibly wise and a brilliant idea to the world. Let us build a tower that reaches to the heavens to show off our greatness, to show all that we've achieved and accomplished in this world. And God thought it not only foolish, but sinful. Oftentimes, God calls us to things that the world will think foolish. There will be not a great explanation for why we do some of the things we do. But Nehemiah is so convinced that he does it because this is what God's called him to do. 
Great work cannot be defined by the world. It is defined by God himself. And sometimes it may not be great in the eyes of the world. And so what possibly might be uh, arising in your mind, even as we look at Nehemiah chapter 6, is this unbelievably clear call to do a certain project. And I think often maybe that's sometimes where we get tripped up a little bit, waiting for that specific, clear call that is undeniably what God has for us, right? We might even hear stories of other people who maybe use that, that language of this is what God has called me to or God called me to this thing, this place, this job, this person, this relationship or whatever. And not to discredit any of those because I'm sure that is the case, but often waiting for that clarity of call paralyzes us from doing what God wants us to do. Because when we look at the whole of Scripture, there is a general call for every single believer. Whether you've heard God speak to you audibly or not, you are called. And God has purpose and a calling for your life. That purpose, at a root level for every single Christian, is to glorify God in whatever you're doing and to make disciples. He may be gracious enough to give you a specific calling in light of that, on top of that, whatever. But if nothing else, when we look to Scripture, this is what every single believer is called to. To glorify God in in your vocation, what you do, in in your family, in your life, and to make disciples. Wherever God has you, he has called you there. So the question we must ask is what work are we doing Is it the work of making disciples and growing into the image of Jesus and and learning and growing in our glorifying and worship of God in, in every area of life? And if we're trusting in God, walking in purity and and thanking God for what He has already given us, you're doing that great work. If we're learning and growing in our understanding of how God has equipped us right now for everything that's actively happening in our life, that's that great work that God has called us to. Your family is that great work that God has called you to. Your friends, your classes, where you work, the relationships you already have with people, that is exactly where God has you on purpose. No matter where you're at in life, God is calling you to honor him in it and to recognize that it may not seem great to us, but it is great to him that our lives in this exact moment is the great work that God has called us to. In Nehemiah chapter 6, we find that their, their offers to meet and distract Nehemiah turn into an attempt to discredit him as a leader. And so we see this building escalation of what they're trying to do. They first try to distract him from what God has called Nehemiah to do in those first four verses. And in verse 5, we see they attempt to discredit him as a leader. In the same way, verse 5, in the same way Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant with me with an open letter in his hand, meaning it was literally open. It wasn't sealed, didn't have that wax with the stamp thingy on it. Uh, It was open. And so what that meant is that anybody could read it and the servant who delivered it was intended to pronounce it to anyone he came across. In it, it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, 
And that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem that there's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. What they are essentially doing is generating rumors as they are writing them in this open letter, hoping that the accusations themselves, even though they are false, will discredit Nehemiah as a leader. They spread rumors about Nehemiah planning to throw out the Persian rulers and take control of the kingdom of Israel. And the enemy is going to go after the leaders because it's quite literally more bang for their buck, right? If they're able to discredit Nehemiah, work on the wall shuts down. The people are thrown back into this distorted identity and restoration stalls for them. And once again, it doesn't mean that, that you won't find yourself coming under attack. Because as we all mature and grow as Christians, God is growing us into leaders and, and different spheres of influence, right? Which means how you live impacts other people. That's what a leader is, when your life has impact on other people. So if you are a community group leader, you impact those in your group. If you are a husband or a dad, or a mom, or a wife, you impact your family. A pastor impacts their church. A boss impacts their employees or the company. That's why Jesus quotes the prophet Zechariah in Matthew 26, saying, strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. The enemy will target people of influence, leaders, because they get more bang for their buck because it affects everything. I mean, how many times have you guys in life seen when a, someone like a pastor falls into sin? Or when a husband or a dad or a mom or a wife is not living up to that role and that identity, it affects the whole family. Right, when a boss is caught embezzling money or insider training, it affects the whole company. Nehemiah flatly rejects the attempts to discredit him, and it feels like it doesn't even phase him or stop him. He just keeps going right along. In verse 6, then I sent to him, saying, no such things as you, have, you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. And He says, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But Nehemiah prays, O oh God, strengthen my hands. The enemy tries to distract and discredit Nehemiah. And when Nehemiah doesn't take the bait, his opposition has one more trick up their sleeves, right? It continues to escalate further and further and further. They try to deceive him into doing something sinful that would have disqualified him from leading. Because we know right now he's the governor of Jerusalem. But we also know he's a bit more than just the governor. He's this, this figurehead or this kind of tip of the spear for what God is doing in Israel at this time. And so they try to disqualify him from that position of leadership. Look in verse 10. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delai, the son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. 
Now, Shemaiah is some kind of prophet. We don't really know much about him, but we do know he is a prophet, which means he's regarded in the community as being able to declare the will of God, right? To be that messenger of God like we see so frequently in the Old Testament. And he is meeting with Nehemiah and telling him that they're coming to kill him. And they better go up into the temple and close themselves in. And the whole point of the opposition is trying to stall and and distract from the building of the wall. Right? But before, it had been blatantly coming from their enemies. We've seen it a couple times in in, chapters 3 and 4, and we see it here in in chapter 6 that it is blatantly coming from the enemies. They do not want the nation of Israel to be restored in their identity. They do not want them to build the wall, to progress, to have a defense from other nations. But now that same desire that Sanballat and Tobiah and Gishim had is trying to be achieved by seemingly a friend. This is someone in the inside of the city. This is not an external prophet that they kind of Trojan horsed into the town. This is one of the prophets of Jerusalem. The enemy pays off a prophet to invite Nehemiah into the places of the temple he is not supposed to go. And if Nehemiah had done this, there would have been ample opportunities for his enemy to give him a bad name, to taunt him, to discredit him, because he would have been genuinely sinful and would have been disqualified from leadership. But what stands out more than that this would be a sinful thing for a Jew to do in this time and place What stands out more is that he would be then walking in disobedience to what God had called him to, right? For Nehemiah, this is huge. For Nehemiah, disobedience is sin. For Nehemiah, sin is disobeying what God would have him to do. And there's a a theological term for this. And we've all heard of, of one half of this theological phrase. There are sins of commission, right? These are the sins that we, we commit. Things like adultery and gossip and slander and greed and covetousness and murder, right? These are all very familiar sinful actions to us. But the other half of that is that there are sins of omission. There are acts left undone. Things that God asks us to do, and we do not do them. Like making disciples, like loving our enemies, honoring our father and mother, loving God and loving our neighbors, these things he calls us to in his family, in his life. Nehemiah sees sin as disobeying what God has for him. And so often in these particular circles, like our circle, like this kind of uh, cove of Christianity, we spend a lot of time on not doing certain things, right? And not doing those things may be good, but it often leads us to a place where we focus the majority of our time, energy, and attention on not doing certain things. And to the extent and to the extreme, that's legalism, essentially, living in a life of just saying no, 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 because we want to be moral and righteous and, and so forth. But we have to understand is Jesus didn't die to keep us from doing things. He died and redeemed us so we might live and live in this calling of obedience and serving God. And I just sometimes wonder if we've placed, even internally, maybe together as a church or maybe just even our own selves, placed too much emphasis on not doing certain things or living a certain way, which is, once again, that's all fine and and good. 
but sometimes that gets in the way or that distracts us from focusing on how we ought to be living. I'm just thinking of, uh, of a parable we talked about a couple of times throughout the book of Nehemiah, the parable of talents in Matthew 25. If you've read that parable, if you've spent time in that story, what is fascinating is that the master, when he returns to his servants, whom he, he left a certain portion of his, uh, of his property, of his wealth with them to steward and manage, the one whom he condemns and calls evil is the one who did nothing with what the master gave him. It's a fascinating, fascinating parable. Because both sins of commission and sins of omission, I mean, they're both sins. That's, that's the deal. And if both are sins, then there's a place for confession and repentance in both of those things. And I think often when we speak of confession and repentance, we think of acts committed, which is, yes, that's an important journey to walk through. But often our mind does not go to things we have not done portions of our identity as Christians we have not lived out or are not actively pursuing and walking out. Now, for some, this could launch you into a downward spiral of guilt and shame because of all the opportunities you missed. And before you get there, I want to nip that in the bud and just remind you of the story of God's people who had actively rejected his call to be restored for 150 years as they were in exile. Right, one of the things we said in Nehemiah chapter 1 is that it didn't necessarily have to be Nehemiah that led this charge. They had been in exile for 150 years, and, and maybe in God's sovereign plan, that was the plan all along. But at any moment, someone could have rose up and said, we need to restore our identity with God. We need to return to faithfulness and obedience to the God who brought us out of slavery, out of Egypt. And they did it. But what I love about the story of God's people in Nehemiah is that while they had missed opportunities throughout time and history, the grace of God is abundant. God graciously gives them Nehemiah who does lead them. And God doesn't miss a beat. He's with them. He's defending them, protecting them, building them up as a people as they start once again to live as the people of God. For us, the invitation is to not sulk and live in shame because of what you've missed out on or maybe all the missed opportunities that may be rolling through your mind like a video right now. But the call and the invitation is to open your eyes to what God is calling you to right now. God's not holding a grudge against you. He's not disappointed. He's not marking the missed opportunities you've had in life, but calling you right now to see what he has for you and to walk in obedience and faithfulness in that. The call is to begin living today, to not worry about the past that's brought us to this point. Maybe confession, repentance is is the right move for some of us this morning to wipe the slate clean and say, okay, God, like Isaiah said, here I am, send me. What do you have for me? My eyes are open to what you're calling me to do. One thing we've seen throughout the book of Nehemiah is a man committed to walking in the ways of the Lord, both when it's convenient and not. He is a man of prayer and obedience in the scriptures, and, and these are powerful pieces of the leader that Nehemiah is. And it shapes his courage to say yes to God when the time was right. 
Nehemiah lived this faithful life in preparation for what God had for him. And here, in chapter 6, we see it shapes his response to possible distractions from the mission that God would have for him. Right When his enemies try to do him harm, he simply doesn't respond to them. He doesn't go where they want them to go. He could have tried to simply get these guys off his back by maybe adhering or letting himself fall into temptation of those distractions. But he was wise and careful, and he simply told them that he was exactly where he was supposed to be, and he would not be distracted. And as his enemies tried to discredit him by spreading rumors, he responds with truth and prays, Oh God, strengthen my hands. His focus is on the work that God has for him, not from the attacks from the opposition. And finally, they try to deceive and disqualify him from within, from one of his own people. And Nehemiah had the discernment to recognize that. Speak truth and be faithful to what God had called him to do. Nehemiah shows us that walking in faithfulness helps you identify those moments where the enemies of God want to take you to a place that God would not have for you. Take you to a place of distraction from what he's called you to do. One thing that studying Nehemiah has shown us together over the last few weeks And a similar study of the life of Jesus shows us is that circumstances will arise around you where you don't always have time to to stop everything, study the scriptures, go through a six-week class about a topic, grow in maturity, walk in faithfulness, and then jump back in and be able to have the the wise answer to that problem. Right? I think we sometimes wish we could kind of hit the pause button on our life, do some study work, right? Do some prayer, kind of bolster up a little bit, and then hit play again. But these are all the things that we do in preparation now for those moments that God may have for us in the future. The kind of man Nehemiah was, one of faithfulness and obedience and prayer and loving the scriptures and loving God and seeking to bear and live his own identity as a person of God were all things he did in preparation for these pivotal moments in his leadership and these pivotal moments in Israel's history. Nehemiah shows us that a life of faithfulness is necessary in obeying God, saying yes to God, and staving off attacks from the enemy. Which means, simply, how you walk now shapes the way you will respond in times of testing and persecution and attack. So because you may not be facing too much hardship right now, or you may not be in too many areas of stretching or, or God taking you out of your comfort zone. Nehemiah tells us that's no reason to slacken our prayer, our study of the scriptures, our, our pursuit of God and all who he is. But in fact, those are a part of the everyday life of those who love Jesus in preparation for what may come. Constantly, we have encouragements from writers in the New Testament to be ready be alert, be on guard, be actively putting on the new self, putting on the old self, faithfully pursuing Jesus and all he has for us. And Nehemiah lived this life of preparation and faithful obedience to God, and he was ready. Nehemiah had walked faithfully with God in a season of total exile. And the Lord had prepared him for these moments of obedience when the enemy tried to distract him from the mission, to discredit him 
and to disqualify him from leadership. I think we can all learn something from Nehemiah's single-mindedness of the mission that God had given him. And for us, each one of us, we've been given this great, big gospel assignment of glorifying him in, in everything we're doing and making disciples. God calls each and every one of us into this life of advancing his mission. Not one of us is exempt from that. Every single believer is, is sent into this world on purpose, on mission. So the question we have to consider for us, for ourselves, for our own life, for maybe the people around us too, is, is have we gotten to work like Nehemiah? Or are we standing idly by being distracted by the enemy? Are we distracted maybe by waiting for a call, quote unquote, beyond what we see in scripture? Right? We sometimes, I would say not even sometimes, we often forget that we are all called to this life. And we're waiting for that one specific thing, right? For God to answer that one prayer about the next season of our life. Or for God to give some clarity about what's next. And often Jesus directs our attention back to the present. He says, let tomorrow worry about tomorrow. Don't be anxious for tomorrow. Be concerned with the things that I have for you today. Remember our identity as God's sons and daughters. Remember our calling of life with him and remember the mission of bringing others into that same story. There's a a verse in Romans chapter 14 where Paul says, anything does not emanate from faith is, is sin. Don't let seemingly good things distract you from the great things that God has for you. Nehemiah's character and resolve is tested to its utmost on the eve of finishing the wall. And a man less concerned with God's glory and opinion may have given in to these temptations. Because opposition to our characters often attest far greater than any physical or intellectual challenge we would encounter. But what we see in the life of Nehemiah is this this faithful walking with God, growing in him, learning more about him, growing in our worship and our love of him and our love for for his people and for all of creation. Nehemiah is not distracted by things. He has a single-mindedness that is apparent in Nehemiah chapter six. And I think a single-mindedness that we need to meditate on and consider uh, this morning. Because how often are we distracted from the things that God would call us to do? Our prayer, and where I want to camp out on just for a moment as we get ready to respond, is is in Nehemiah 6, 9. Oh God, strengthen my hands. And so John's going to come up and he's going to lead us in a time of response, of singing, and we also have communion available and a give box available over there if you'd like to respond during the next few songs. But I'm going to ask you guys to stand up uh, with me, and we're just going to take a moment and to meditate on that prayer that Nehemiah has of strengthen my hands. One of the things that is evident is that Nehemiah does not do this on his own, but he is empowered by God for this mission. 
And that is the case with us as well. So go ahead and stand, and, and, uh, and if you would, if you feel comfortable, uh, you put your hands out right in front of you. This simply puts our body in a, in a receiving posture. And so we're going to ask the Lord for his strength and, and boldness as we, as we enter and as we continue to walk in this life and mission he has for us. And so, Father, we are so grateful for stories and people like Nehemiah. God, thanks for what you're doing in the people and all that we can learn from it. God, you empowered Nehemiah for the work that you called him to. You gave him a a single-mindedness, this purpose for the mission that you had crafted him for. So God, would you help us this morning be our strength, strengthen our hands for the work that you would have for us. God, would you help us tear away all the distractions from what you would have for us? And would we authentically seek your kingdom first and let you take care of the rest? God, if anxiety is creeping in our hearts, would you, would you kill that and remove that? If worry or tension is creeping in about all the things we have to do in a given day, God, would you magnify your voice in our life? And Father, as we respond, as we take what we have learned from your word, and as it penetrates our hearts and as it breaks down walls and and as it just marinates and saturates with us, God, would we be a people just marked by obedience to you? Would we see walking faithful, obedient lives to you as not a dull or boring thing, but as the biggest adventure you'd have for us? God, you call us into a story that is so much bigger than our 80 or 90 years here on earth. And God, would we not lose sight of that for all the things that try to distract us from you? God, would you be center in our mind? Would you be at the forefront of our thoughts? And fathers, we live this out this week in the power of your spirit. Would you show us how your story is so much bigger than ours? And our distractions are just not worth it. So God, empower us for this journey. We know that we cannot do this on our own. We need you. We need your strength, your leadership, your guidance. And so, God, would you give that to us? Amen.